In both the gospel that was just proclaimed and in our first reading, we hear about this call. In the first reading, Elisha, or Elisha, is being called to succeed Elijah as the prophet of God. And Elisha is saying, well, let me go take care of my family and say goodbye to them and all that. And Elijah rips his garments and says, no, well, what, what do you think I called you for? It's not for you to, to respond on your own terms. It's God's terms, and he wants you now. And so Elisha butchers his, his cattle, burns, uses the wood from their yokes, etc., to do that and offer sacrifice to God and feeds his, his farmers and whatnot, and then takes on the mantle or the role that Elijah has as this prophet of God. In the gospel today, Jesus is speaking to his apostles, and to the apostles, he's saying, follow me. And then uh, he goes on with this sort of make-believe dialogue where somebody says, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. But do you go and proclaim the kingdom of God? And another says, I'll follow you, but first, let me say goodbye to my family, etc. And Jesus says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. So he's, he's very emphatic about this. So there's an invitation, a concept of, of an invitation, that God is inviting everyone to be his disciple, to be his follower. But within that, for each one of us, There's some kind of specific call, some kind of specific work that we're supposed to do for him. And if we don't, woe to us. One, we miss the one and only chance, which is in this life. We don't get another chance in the next life, and we don't get a second shot on earth. So this is it. We've got one shot, and he's giving us all specific work to do, tailor-made for each one of us. And it will be a great day of regret if we don't do it. It will, because eternity is long. It's beyond our imagination how long eternity is. Even shining in heaven, being, oh, I made it to heaven, this is great. But I'm not shining like I should have shined. Because if I had done what God wanted me to do with my life on earth, then I would be shining like that one over there. Not that I have any envy in the kingdom of heaven, But that's what God had in mind for me. And for all eternity, I will never shine like that one. And eternity is long. It's very long. So we all still have time left. Some of us decades of life, some years of life, some months, maybe even only weeks of life left. But we still have time. And it's important that we act on it. And then we say, but I'm afraid to do what God wants me to do. I'm afraid. It means I'll have to lead the herd, leave the herd, and there's safety in the herd. And if I leave the herd, then predators can single me out and get me. I don't, I don't want to do that. To which God says, you have to trust in me. And if it's my will that predators get you, then so be it. So be it. But maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe I'm going to call you to this thing, and you're not going to like it because it means you're going to have to turn off the TV or turn off the smartphone. You're going to have to reorder and reprioritize your life. And you don't want to do that. You're going to have to get off the couch. You're going to have to stop shopping as much. Um, You're going to have to stop hanging out with those people, whatever it is, in order to fulfill this mission and this mandate. And it's really, really hard to leave what's safe and comfortable and secure 
for something that's frankly heroic. All right, two analogies of this. When Russia attacked Ukraine, the Ukrainians weren't saying, the government of Ukraine wasn't saying to its citizens, all of those who want to go take up arms and go to the front lines to fight the Russians, uh, we'll let you do that. You go ahead and do that if that's what you want. Know what they said is, we have a need, and if you're able-bodied, you will go to the front, and you will fight the Russians. We hope that all of you recognize the need in this moment, but just in case you don't and you're selfish, we're going to draft you into the army, and you're going to go fight them. And that's how we beat Japan and Germany in the World War II. Sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do, but there's a greater good involved. Now the other story. I've been reading about St. Bernadette Subaru. She was the, the 14-year-old who saw the Blessed Virgin Mary at Lourdes in France. And I've got this big, thick biography of her life written by one of my favorite historians. And so and she's a canonized saint. Some people might think, well, she's a canonized saint because she saw the Blessed Virgin Mary and therefore the church declared her saint. But as you read through her life, you realize, no, she's a real saint. She was a very holy girl. And she's an incorruptible. You can go to France today. She died, she died what, a hundred and, uh, I don't know, probably a hundred and thirty years ago or something. And her body is still lying as if she died yesterday. For, for God, she was very special. And as I read through her life, she's an illiterate peasant child cannot read or write. She's 14 years old. She's tending sheep in the mountains. That's what she's done for the last year of her life before she sees the Blessed Virgin Mary. She pines to receive communion, but she can never get in town to go through the first communion classes with the nuns. And then, of course, she can't because she can't read. She's having a very difficult time in the few times where she does get to go into town for some catechesis very difficult time remembering anything, but she truly knows that that's Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. She's pining to receive her First Communion. And for her age, she's 14 at the time that the apparitions begin, she's short for her age, so she actually looks like maybe a 12-year-old girl kind of thing. So, but she's profoundly humble. She doesn't have any resentment. She has a worry and concern that she'll never be able to receive Jesus. But she doesn't resent the profound poverty of her family. I mean, even in Lourdes, which had a lot of poor people, her family were considered extra poor. They lived in what they called the dungeon. It was a one-room former prison cell. Is literally where the family lived. And outside the front door was a giant communal pile of dung. And this is what, if you open the door or the one window, there's the dung pile, nothing but that smell coming in and flies. So this is her. And as near as I can tell, I can't, I don't pick up on her ever committing a venial sin, let alone mortal. That would be beyond her scope to commit a mortal sin. But I, I, I can't even see where she committed a venial sin. She was profoundly little and holy giving a starving child, giving away her food to her younger, starving siblings. Her six-year-old brother would come to the church 
and he would crawl around on the floor looking for wax that had fallen from the processional candles and eat the wax off the floor. He was starving. That's how that's how off. It was to her that God singled her out. And only she got to see the mother of God. And she got to see her many times. There was 14, there was actually 15 straight days in a row where she got to see the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the Blessed Virgin Mary put her through great trials and tests. There was a couple times where she did not appear. And there would be great crowds. Bernadette would just bawl her eyes out. She didn't appear today and she would not know why. There were great tests of her faith. And of course the priest didn't believe her. The pastor called her a liar multiple times to her face, boldly calling her a little liar. A little girl at school slapped her across the face without saying anything. The nuns wouldn't believe her. Nobody would believe her. Her parents did, praise God. But she knew what she saw, and she knew it was the real deal. And there were trials and tribulations to come. But it was all part of a master plan. See, if any of the three or four priests in the town of Lourdes, 5,000 people with three or four priests, if any of them believed in her, then people could say, well, the priest put her up to this, etc. But none of them did. None of them would go to the apparition site. They'd all stay away from the apparition site. None of the authorities, none of the educated people believed in her. None of the people who could have coached her in what to say believed in it. And so you hear you have this profoundly poor, illiterate child saying profound things that you basically would need at least a master's degree in theology to be able to echo back. And you hear the child couldn't even pass her first communion tests. God was using her in a profound way, in ways that she could not understand at the time, in ways that left her crying all the time derided by her townsfolk, etc. But God had a big, big plan for her that she could not see and she could not control. But what she could do was say yes to it. She could keep going back to that hollow in the cliff, even though the authorities and everyone said, do not go, you cannot go. She would keep going and keep going. And so this gets to this Jesus saying, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. You, come and follow me. Stop worrying about your family and all the other stuff. Stop worrying about what others will say. Come and do my bidding. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's not for us to understand. It's for God to understand. It's for us to do it and to trust him. And when we do, great, great things will happen. Great things happen as a result of the apparitions at Lourdes, but God needed a burnt death. He couldn't have appeared to somebody as, as educated or whatever as me. He needed a, a pure, humble vessel, one who is utterly powerless, utterly powerless. And then God would do great things through her. So all of the priests ended up believing in the pastor in particular. He became a great protector of Bernadette. Great, great provider for the family and seeing to it that they had food, etc. So this is the thing, is that Bernadette's apparitions weren't for her alone. They were for the whole world. 
Elisha, his being called by God wasn't for him alone. It was for the whole world. Jesus calling the twelve wasn't just for each one of them and what they thought they wanted in life. Their life now belonged to the world. It belonged to, to something much, much greater than them. And the same holds true for every one of us. That in the end, Jesus is calling every one of us to be saints. And it's for him and his kingdom. We'll make it to heaven without being a saint. Maybe passing through purgatory or whatever. But if we do strive to be the saint that he created us to be, then we'll change the world. And that's the point. Is that it's not about me and my own happiness and my own desires in life. It's ultimately about God and his plan and his plan to save the human race. So follow him. And when he says follow him, it means you're going to have to leave some things behind. That's how following works. And it's okay to leave those things behind. It's okay. You will inherit much more from him. Trust in him that the fulfillment of all desire rests in God, not in this world or the people or the things of this world, but in God alone. And eternity is a very long time. So with what's left of this little time that each of us have left on earth, let's put our hand to the plow and say, Lord, lead me. Teach me and show me what you want of my life to be a saint for you. And I trust you. I trust you. That whatever comes of this will be for your glory and the salvation of souls. And when I die... If I do this, I'll have no regret.